Hi, my name is Juju, and welcome to the Go Deep, where we're going to do just that. Go deep inside your brain. Go deep, go deep, go deep inside your brain. This is a self-exploration podcast. I'll be here speaking with professionals who specialize in different methods of discovering your sense of self, whether that's physical, psychological, or spiritual. Together, we'll be going real deep to bring to the surface new perspectives and mind-opening material to enrich your experience of life. A lot of this is going to be lesser known and unconventional because I'm lesser known and unconventional. And probably so are you. So happy to have you on this journey. Get ready to go deep. Go deep, go deep. Today's episode is with Matt Ringrose. Matt is a Vedic meditation teacher who founded Bondi Meditation Center. He also is the host of the Very Vedic podcast of which I have listened to every single episode, so definitely go check that out. Today, Matt explains Vedic meditation, why learn it, and how it can impact your life. We also speak about a very hot topic right now, which is surrender. I think we all hear a lot about surrender, but what does it actually mean, and how can you apply it to your life? Find out now. Welcome to the Go Deep Podcast, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Absolute pleasure. Glad we finally got round to it. it looked like it was never going to happen for a minute, didn't it? I know. We were almost cursed, but the universe has brought us together. Or at least not directly prevented us from coming together. It would be more accurate. True. <laughs> yeah. True. It took a little bit, but I'm glad that we're here. Mm. I'd like to kick off by starting with why. Why learn about Vedic meditation? Why learn, or even why learn Vedic meditation? Yeah. Because really there's two things, aren't there? With Vedic meditation, there's Vedic meditation, which is a meditation. And then there is Vedic knowledge, which is a body of knowledge which accompanies the meditation. And we can come on to and talk about separately. But Mm -hmm. why learn Vedic meditation? Um, Because, well, what do you want? Like, what do you want in your life? Do you want, um, do you want to feel happy for no reason do you want to feel peaceful um, and able to find the good in things Um, even difficult situations do you want to not take things personally when someone's having a go at you I could go on but it's probably already getting a bit annoying that list Um, sounds pretty good yeah but basically you know these are the kind of things that meditation is supposed to help with and Vedic meditation is a very powerful and a very easy meditation Mm -hmm. so basically why do vedic meditation because it will um give you what you want as a human being and what we want as a human being is a consistent experience well correct me if i'm wrong what i want is a consistent experience of peace and joy and enthusiasm Mm -hmm. and connection to life all right and being able to handle stuff and enjoy life to the max and um, vedic meditation it's just a particularly efficient method 
of achieving that uh, because you know i i discovered it having not been able to do other techniques you know i tried other meditation techniques and failed totally just didn't enjoy them just didn't get any just didn't feel like anything was happening mm-hmm. you know the, the classic ones where you have to concentrate on your breath and stuff like mindfulness yeah mm-hmm. yeah mindfulness and these days in the most popularized form of uh, headspace i think the apps one of them and lots of the apps use that yeah anyway tried all those nothing doing and then i discovered this meditation got a personalized mantra which is what you do you get this little sound which people get different sounds depending on the person i closed my eyes i thought it inside my head in my mind and vroom went straight to the place where i'd always kind of thought maybe you could go and i went there mm-hmm. and it worked straight away um so it turns out that this meditation is um, is the uh, there may be an easier one. I can't see how it could be much easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, the, it's a very easy meditation to do. It's very gratifying very quickly. So it's Moorish. It feels good to do it, and um, and you notice the benefits in your life quickly. So it has that kind of natural, organic sense of wanting to. Or one has that natural, organic sense of enthusiasm and wanting to do it rather than it being a chore and waiting for something to start happening it's like you do it and oh yeah this is working i'm like if you're lucky and you like me you like do it and like oh this is good for me i better do this yeah like i'd seriously better do this this is good and and i just always have ever since yeah well if it's improving your experience of life you would want to continue right yeah i think about it like it's like i've got a superman suit in the in the wardrobe Mm mm-hmm I don't want to go out without putting it on. Or more like, more realistically, I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame, but I can remove the hump with the meditation and won't be as hideous when I go out. Got it. One or other of those analogies, depending on the day. Basically, what I'm saying is I don't generally like to face the world without the meditation under my belt. Yeah. And so how does it do that in like how does meditation really make you feel that way how does it work well you could look at it on lots of levels all these answers um would depend on who's asking the question so let's just say the person asking the question is an empirical pragmatist somebody who's interested in just things you can measure yeah um i don't know if that really is you but we'll just assume for a moment because some of your listeners might fall into that category as well so how do we know? Yeah, well, I mean, what's really going on here that we can measure? Well, what happens when you do this meditation is um, the mantra has the effect of pulling the mind into deeper states of consciousness and pulling the mind and whatever the mind does, the body follows. So the body goes into this very, very deep state of rest. Mm-hmm. And in that deep state of rest, that's called a restful hypometabolic state. Mm-hmm. Sounds posh, but basically Sorry. hypo means low. And metabolic refers to metabolizing oxygen. So hypermetabolic just means go into a state where you don't breathe much. Um, And in that state of deep rest, the body likes that state. It's a very deep state of deep, profound healing that's facilitated. So it rewards us and it gives us a a big surge of what we call adaptive chemistry. And that's all the good stuff. The nice stuff you'll know about. Serotonin, dopamine, everyone knows those, I think, these days. Calm and happy chemicals. But also oxytocin, which is a love chemical, anandamide, bliss chemical. We get this 
big f- wash of this washing through our system each time we sit down to meditate. So you're sitting down in a chair and, you know, the pleasure levels are rising. You're feeling safer and safer and the contentedness levels are going up and up. Mm-hmm. So that in itself makes you feel good. And that doesn't just last in the meditation. That wash affects you for the next few hours and eventually all the time, all your life. Yeah. And it also has one knock-on effect, which is that when your body has this wash of chemicals through, it can't keep up the pretense that it usually keeps up. And the pretense or the illusion our body is normally under is that there's a problem. You're sitting in the chair, you're feeling good, you're feeling safe, you're feeling happy. The body goes, all right, maybe there's not an emergency after all. Mm -hmm. So it stops the fight or flight response, which most people are in to some degree a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So you get less cortisol, less adrenaline, less epinephrine, less norepinephrine, and lots of other stress hormones, and more serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and the good stuff. So you start to feel better. So during the meditation, just to sum up, uh, two times a day for 20 minutes, during that meditation, you're feeling a sense of bliss and happiness kind of wash over you. And since you have that break from kind of the rest of the day, then it starts to kind of permeate throughout the rest of the day. That's right. You literally start to, um, those chemicals don't just last in your body for 20 minutes. They start to be um, the more consistent chemistry that you experience in your body. Mm. So that's one layer we could look at it. Yeah. Another one, and it's always... And that's interesting and in, in itself and it's got a lot of value. But there's from when we're getting into Vedic stuff, we always get down to the level of consciousness. And that's where things get really interesting. So what happens from the level of consciousness is that when we meditate, we expand our consciousness. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you understand by that, Julie, when I say that? For me... What I personally think on expanding consciousness would be kind of seeing things as a bigger picture mm-hmm. than what they currently are, yeah. feeling more, not more separate from others, but more together. Yeah. And having a expanded consciousness, consciousness would be like a deeper understanding of the world that I live in beyond my own um, experience. Brilliant description. Was that Brilliant description. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's basically being able to have an awareness of and encompass more of the truth of the world, right? And and that replaces, that starts to replace um, kind of our mistaken ideas. So as, as our consciousness expands, there are certain, it's a bit of a posh phrase, but certain self-engendered beliefs mm-hmm. according to each state of consciousness. Just means... Okay different kind of ideas and beliefs arise depending on your state of consciousness. Oh. If you're in a lower state of consciousness, say quite fear-dominated, you'll have ideas and beliefs about the world being scary. Okay. If you are in a, a lower state of consciousness, kind of confined by a sense of grief, you'll have a quite a sad view and hopeless view of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as your state of consciousness grows, you start to have a, a more truthful understanding of the world. A, an understanding of the world which goes beyond individual stressed out interpretations of the world yeah. and gets to the essence of what's really happening in the world. 
the real laws of cause and effect. What's really going on? So what's really going on? What's really going on in the world the whole time is that there is an opportunity. The world is arranged entirely for one reason, and that is to help everything evolve, including us. Mm -hmm. So everything that happens is, um, particularly those things that happen that are challenging, are all opportunities to grow and expand into greater freedom and joy. Even if along the way they feel shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so true. It is true. Well, it's true from the Vedic view. Let's entertain it as a possibility. But coming back to how we're talking about, we're trying to explain why meditation changes the way you feel. Mm -hmm. Because consciousness is primary, meaning our state of consciousness will determine what body we print out. If we're in a really stressed out state of consciousness, a narrow fear-based state of consciousness, we'll print out a body which has the expression of that. Um, And we will feel our our chemistry in our body will feel more anxious and we're more likely to experience illness Mm -hmm. and so on. But if our state of consciousness rises, then we start to have um, a body of bliss, it's known as. So the body prints out a body and a body chemistry, which, is co- which corresponds to the state of consciousness. And the higher the state of consciousness, the, more, the better we feel, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just black and white, and it's not just all unicorns and rainbows if you learn to meditate. There's a period through which um, most of us go where you can actually find life seems to be more troubling, or certainly there are lots of challenges there. And even, you know, we can have ill health mm-hmm. for periods. And this is all part of the purification of the journey. And it's all part of what I spoke about. It's all opportunities to evolve. And actually, when it gets particularly challenging, either physically or mentally, you know, then that's often a point at which we really do evolve quickly. Because a lot of times opportunities for evolutions does come from suffering, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we're just, you know, motoring along... It's very easy. It, it, look, if the external world is satisfying us, there's no need to transcend it. As we sometimes experience when we're on holiday and, and things like that, you know, there, there are period, and periods in our life where everything's just going so well that we're not particularly motivated to transcend, meaning go beyond any of that, because it's all really enjoyable. But at some point, almost all of us, I'd say probably all of us at some point, will have the experience where things don't go perfectly to plan. We can't organize events to make ourselves feel better. Mm -hmm. And we can't think our way into feeling better. And this is where we need to transcend. And transcending means we need to get in touch with a part of ourselves which is not touched or affected by any of those things. And if we can access that place, then we can stop resisting what's happening, be open to finding the gift in it, and generally progress for it more positively. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about resistance? Sure. Um, So I think that 
surrender is kind of a big theme for me recently. Yeah. And and in my community, we've kind of just a lot of people have been talking about surrender and just allowing things. Mm -hmm. And of course, I took your learn to let go course. So I'd love to hear a bit from you on surrender and how that ties to Vedic meditation. Yeah. So Vedic meditation, if you ever learn it, you'll find out as you try and do it. Um, the more you try and control it, the worse it feels. And the more you let go, the better it feels. So as a practice, the actual meditation practice of letting go teaches us kind of incrementally, each time we do it, the futility of control. The more we try and control things in meditation, the worse it feels, the more we let go, the deeper, more gratifying, better it feels. And as we do that, we find that we're getting better at letting go in life outside of meditation. So it's like we're loosening some tightly wired control mechanism inside of ourselves. Each time, you know, it doesn't work to control, that mechanism loosens a little bit more. And so in itself, it is a means of um, moving us towards letting go and acceptance. And letting go, acceptance, and even surrender, and we can talk about the difference between those things. Mm -hmm are all also qualities of this higher state of consciousness I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So as you expand your consciousness, you start to become better at letting go. People learn to meditate and they classic reports that come back and say things like, yeah, I was there and I was with my mum and she's usually annoying me, mm -hmm. but she wasn't so bad or, you know, somebody cut me up on the road and I'd usually have flown off the handle, but I didn't. And there's lot, kind of lots of fairly entwined reasons for this, um, why we get better accepted. It's not just like one thing. It's a combination of things. One of them is that we're starting to find fulfillment inside from the meditation. So we're not so desperate for everything to go perfectly outside in case we don't feel fulfilled. Got it. See what I mean? Yeah. Uh, another point is that we start to have a natural tendency to want to respond creatively to challenges and kind of relish it so you know everything going perfectly to plan starts to become a bit boring because we start to find that there's actually a lot of little hidden satisfaction in adjusting to things creatively when they go wrong so this is acceptance another part of acceptance is that we stop taking things so personally so when we see the world um, operating in an arbitrary way, which seems unfair, let's say, um, we understand that there is actually a gift in there somewhere because it's an evolutionary gift. When somebody starts to um, annoy us or project onto us, you know, the kind of thing that you might normally react to, you recognize it as an expression of their stress. And we're not so insecure in our own self that we think it's us. So all of these things combined, you know, the meditation technique itself, not feeling so reliant on everything going a certain way to make us feel fulfilled and okay, um, an enjoyment in adapting creatively, not taking things so personally, all these things make it a bit easier to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, it's if you feel good within yourself, mm. 
then you realize that actually other people's behavior is just dependent on how good they're feeling within themselves. Yeah. So actually whatever they're doing, even if it is at you, is not about you. It's about mm. them. And yeah, and you start to be able to make that distinction. You can see their kind of innocent essence as separate from their stress. And the thing is, when we don't like people, it's not them we don't like. If we could see their essence, we'd fall in love with them immediately. What we don't like is their stress mm. that they're expressing. Which everyone has a lot of. Yes. And another thing that meditation helps with and makes it easier to go with the flow is the reason we don't go with the flow, the reason we go into resistance, mm -hmm. is when we're triggered. It could be a little triggering, subtle. could be obvious triggering. But basically, it's always a triggering when we feel resistance. And that triggering is that something's happening in the present moment or you're thinking about something which is prodding a tender spot within you, a previous historical experience which is kind of thematically linked to the current thing. So that gives you a disproportion. And what that does is if the old thing was scary, made you anxious, then you feel more anxious. If the old unresolved emotion that's being prodded made you angry, was it anger that you didn't process fully, then that's what's being prodded and that's what will be triggered within you. So when we meditate, we start to melt and release and unwind these deeply wound stresses in the body that we could have had for, you know, to, since yesterday, since last week, since last year, since we were in our mother's womb. Hmm. And as we release, we've got like a smaller inventory of triggers, basically, we're going to get triggered less often. We're going to be better at letting go more often. Because when someone says something that makes you angry, it's not necessarily what they said, but it's the wounds that they hit. Yeah, this is it. This is the whole thing about stress. The stress is not the stress event out in the world is not the cause. And the effect is our mind's response. Mm -hmm. The cause is the stress within us. The trigger, you could say, is the external event. But the cause, actually, of the stress response in ourselves is inside of ourselves. We know this because, you know, different people, and even ourselves, we can have totally different responses to the same situation mm -hmm. in different situations. Yeah, totally. To the same trigger. It just depends on certain time of life, certain circumstances, and so on. Mm. So it's not, yeah, it's not a defined... There's not a defined stress level in the external event. You know, like you only need to look at COVID. People have different responses. The, the stress level, some people have barely felt it, you know, in terms of a stress event. Yeah. Um, and some people have had it totally dominate their lives because it's triggered something, some fear response in them, basically. And it's become an unavoidable trigger. Yeah, even for example, and this is kind of a day-to-day -day example, but say you work in an office mm -hmm. and your boss gives you bad feedback or you consider bad, mm -hmm. then and you're triggered by it, but they could give another person the same feedback who wouldn't be triggered. That's right. On a presentation, for example, that's just like, oh, change these things. Some people might get triggered and some people wouldn't. It's a great example. Okay. Works a really great example. Because, yeah, you've been, you know, cliched example maybe but you've been told off by your parents or mm -hmm. you felt like your performance and perfection was essential to get love at some stage in your life so it triggers something that unconscious mm -hmm. and yeah you have a disproportionate response 
Mm. And it might be, yeah, it, it could be always the same or it could be that that particular day. It also comes down to this thing. There's another thing that meditation helps with, which is it tops up adaptation energy. Now, adaptation energy is the opposite of stress. So you've got stress and you've got adaptation energy. Oh. If you've got a lot, so imagine you've got a cup. If you've got a big full cup at the start of the day of adaptation energy, then if you use a bit up, meaning if something goes wrong and you have to adapt creatively to it, it's okay because you've still got a big cup and you're using it up, using it up, using it up. But when you get dry, when you've drunk all the adaptation energy, used it all up, anything that happens from that moment on is mm -hmm. stressful. It's like if you're boiling a kettle and it's suddenly it's got no water in it. Mm -hmm. You're going to fuse immediately every time. Yeah. Yeah, so you could have, let's say you've been working, you know, depleting of adaptation energy. You've been working too many hours, going out, burning the candle at both ends. And then like in the morning, you have one argument with your partner, jump, you've got nothing left. Mm -hmm. Or even you just get up and you've just got nothing left. Oh, like the final straw. Yeah, the final straw. But the final straw could have been the drink the night before. And now you wake up that morning, if anything doesn't go perfectly to plan and you, you can't adapt creatively, mm. you just stress. So you miss the bus, you can't handle it. The boss tells you off, you can't handle it. Da -da -da -da. See what I mean? And the relevance here is that when you meditate, it tops up your adaptation energy. So this is why you're much less likely to have a nervous breakdown. You don't get many meditators having nervous breakdowns because, you know, why we have a nervous breakdown is we've, we've run dry and we're, our kettle's fusing. We keep yeah. plugging it in every morning, shh, 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 but we're never putting any more adaptation energy. We're never having a break or giving our nervous system a break. But what the meditation does is it gives our nervous system the best of breaks, like twice a day. It gives it pure deep healing rest um, and that tops up your adaptation energy so you could be running a bit dry you know and sometimes i am like you'll get to mid-afternoon and you think oh yeah got the little petrol gauge in your head going down oh time to top up and you top up and then you can use it up again but you're never far away from your next top up when you're running dry too on and say you're really really stressed out it's so much easier to go into fight or flight mode yeah. than if you're feeling cool calm and collected and then some type of trigger comes up yeah you will go yeah fight or flight is the response that's left when we can't be creative yeah <laughs> because that's so i true. can't be creative uh better survive yeah <laughs> so obviously sleep um, restores our adaptation energy to some extent yeah. you know what it's like but meditation is much much more effective than sleep so it does that but about somewhere between six and eight times as effectively and it does it twice a day on top of your sleep why is it more effective than sleep because it's a deeper form of rest mm. so when you do your meditation it's somewhere around um, there's lots of different studies but it's the equivalent of somewhere between one and a half and two hours high quality sleep to do 20 minutes of Vedic meditation. Some of the studies say two hours, some of them say one and a half, but none of them say less than one and a half hours. Mm. So it's a, the hypermetabolic state is deeper than sleep. So if you're low on sleep, you can meditate to kind of get you back there. Totally, yeah. And if, you, if you've learned this meditation and you've got a sleep debt, quite a lot of people find in the first little while, a few weeks, or days at least, that they're nodding off in the meditation. And this yeah. is just because the body says, oh shit, I've got an opportunity to sleep. That mm -hmm. thing I haven't been getting enough of. Because even though meditation's more powerful and deeper than sleep, sleep still does some things that no amount of meditation will ever do. Yeah. So if you've got a, a deficiency in melatonin production, for example, the body goes, quick, let's take this opportunity in it, and you just fall asleep. And that's fine, you don't have to fight it in this meditation at all. Mm. It's totally encouraged. Fall asleep, sweet. 
when I first learned meditation, I with you, mm-hmm. I slept the whole weekend. Mm. I just in between meditating and learning with you, I just passed out the entire weekend. Yeah, and I don't know why. <laughs> That's because the body was doing a once in a lifetime renovation spring clean. So my teacher's teacher is a guy called Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he's probably the most famous. Well, he's the most famous teacher in our tradition. He's most famous of all for teaching the Beatles the technique you learned. Oh. Yeah. So all the Beatles went to Rishikesh and uh, learned this meditation and actually were training to be teachers in this meditation. Mm. They didn't quite finish the training, but they were training to be. There was quite a lot of drugs finding their way into the compound as well. It's a bit complicated. 60s, wasn't it? I get it. Yeah. Anyway, so Maharishi, wise genius that he was, um, said that in the first week of the meditation, when you do this, when you learn and you do your first week, you release about a quarter of your entire backlog of stress from your whole life. That's a lot. It doesn't take you four weeks to to release the whole lot, in case you're wondering. First week, there's quite a lot of stress in us, stresses in us, which doesn't require that much rest, deep rest provided by meditation to release it. So there's quite a lot just hanging in there by a thread. You do your meditation and that flood comes out. And as it comes out, it's a huge purification job for the body. Mm-hmm. So this is why uh, most people feel tired in the first week, sleeping a lot, suddenly never napping, but suddenly napping. Um, quite a few kind of detox symptoms as well, like feeling a bit fuzzy-headed and maybe even a bit rough. And when it comes out that quickly also, some people feel a bit emotional in the first week. Did you feel any of that? No. No. About, half, about 50% of people feel a bit emotional mm. in the first week. But it's not a bad thing. It's like colonic irrigation. Hmm? What's like that? A, colonic irrigation. Oh, know. colonic. Yeah, it's like a colonic. <laughs> I didn't hear that like when properly. <laughs> yeah, you stay with it. So, um, yeah, in the, in the first week, it's not something that happens beyond that. I want to make that clear. But um, some people feel some emotions as they leave. Uh-huh. So the old stress has got a, a flavor to it. If it's old um, anger, stress that's not fully processed and has been sitting inside you when it comes out. You'll have that, you can kind of color the perception. You can have, feel angry, basically. Mm-hmm. And it will probably blame something, find something to blame. Maybe your nearest and dearest and you project onto them. Or it could be anxiety coming up and you'll start worrying about something that's going on that's not particularly worrying or even going into the archives and finding a favorite worry and worrying about that. People will hear this and they're like, oh, don't fancy that much, which is fair enough. It's never that great to feel a negative emotion. Mm-hmm. But I do compare it to a clonic irrigation. You go in and if you've ever had one, dear listener, you'll know that there's, there's often a viewing tube. Oh, a clear I haven't vi- had one. Yeah, there's a clear viewing tube. Great. And you wouldn't think you'd want to look in that. Oh, but you do. It's like a car accident. You, 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 yeah, almost literally at times. Um <laughs> But you do want to have a little look and see what old shit's coming out, basically. And that is, you know, the emotions are passing through the viewing tube of perception, (laughs) as it were, as they leave. So you can have this experience a little bit in the very early stages. Wow. Great. And I love the example that you had right there. (laughs) Yeah. Hovering around the, this idea of stresses accumulating in the body throughout mm. our lives. Mm. Can you actually explain that a little bit further? Yeah, I didn't really make that clear, did I? I just keep stabbing at it here or there. But how it happens is that 
if we were completely surrendered our whole lives, meaning completely non-resistant and able to fully experience everything that ever happened to us, we wouldn't need meditation because there'd be no stress accumulating in our body. You know, you'd get some physical fatigue type stress, which would be released at night. But the more emotional accumulations um, wouldn't be there. But every time we don't fully feel an experience, so we call it overwhelm, which makes it sound like you think, oh, yeah, that must be like kind of close to a nervous breakdown or the end of a relationship or an accident or an illness or something. Yeah, these are all stressful events in the sense that we don't want to fully feel. We find a way of avoiding fully feeling the uncomfortable feelings. Yes. You know, you'll find some way of avoiding feeling it. But when we do that, um, I think, what was it? What was his name? I think it's Freud said stresses, un unprocessed emotions don't die. They just go into the body to be resurrected later on as ghouls. That's totally misquoted, but something like that. <laughs> the, the, the sense is there. So when we don't fully feel an experience, we don't process it. It remains within us as a residue. Mm -hmm. layers of stress in the body um, and there's no way of releasing that stress um, other than a deep deep form of rest that's deeper than sleep so all the things we might think would get rid of it like going having a massage or going on holiday or going for a few drinks with your mates or watching a good film reading a book none of that actually physiologically releases the stress they all serve their purpose and can release them pressure but they won't actually release the stress out of the body. To, for that, you need a deep spiritual practice. And you have to feel your feelings because yeah. if you ignore them, doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means that you're ignoring them. That's right. So the other way that we release stress is by practicing the letting go technique, which of course is taught in some detail, guided exercises, etc., in the Learn to Let Go course. I'm sure the link for which will be in this podcast of course and i've taken it myself so i can attest to okay, how great so it is so all refunds will be given by <laughs> <laughs> yeah so all <laughs> refunds will be given by julie yeah so um so in a nutshell the letting go technique is where we um get in touch with the feeling we practice the art of non-resistance basically um and what we do is we start to get in touch with the radical truth of the experience when we're triggered. So when we're triggered, there's a sensation which is triggered. If we can totally be with that sensation, go to the core of it and allow it for what it is, which is an uncomfortable body sensation, then that will have the effect of allowing that stress to leave the body. Sounds too simple to be true, but it's true. Too good to be true, too easy. So why don't we all do it? Because it's totally counterintuitive. Mm. We get the uncomfortable feeling and we go, oh, and we try and push it down. But the pushing it down actually exacerbates it. That resistance makes it, amplifies it and makes it more uncomfortable and it perpetuates it. Mm -hmm. Actually, interestingly, the Vedic texts, which are these ancient Indian texts from many, many thousands of years ago, have the line in it. I won't, don't know the Sanskrit, but is what we resist persists. And he's there in those ancient texts. And that's the essence of what we're talking about. Mm. So you mentioned before that there's the three things. There's letting go, surrender, and acceptance. Mm. Is there a difference between them? There is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we will define a difference. Um, basically, you've got a scale 
from total rigid attachment, imagine a scale, and say it goes from 0 to 100. Total rigid attachment, total inflexibility, total holding on, zero. Yeah? And then as you get a bit better, you start letting go a bit. Let's say you move through infinite grades of letting go. And your destination at the other end at 100 points or thereabouts. We say 95 to 100. So there's a little, there's a little window you can get into there of surrender, which is like advanced letting go, if you like. Oh, so surrender is less this kind of neutral idea, like letting go. Let's imagine you've got, you've got your house and then you get a knock at the door and the knock at the door is an experience you didn't want. <laughs> the driving ticket or you trod in some dog shit, something like that. The experience comes to the door, letting go is you like kind of neutral and, you, and you kind of, you're not really that chuffed about it. But you're like, oh yeah, come in, you can go out the back door, you know, just go straight through. So you're not stopping it coming in. You're having the experience. And that's good. But what's better than letting go and acceptance, which we could kind of bundle together, is surrender. Surrender is where the driving ticket knocks on the door and you say, hello there, driving ticket. Why don't you come in here? I've been waiting for you. I want to spend a bit of time with you. Let's have a cup of tea. And you sit down with your driving ticket experience you've just got and you embrace it and you find out what you can learn from it. You love it. You love it as another teacher, another aspect of life which is going to help you. Mm. So this is surrender and this is the destination. So letting go is the pathway to surrender. Mm, and surrender is the ultimate. Embracing everything that comes your way, the positive and the negative, because the negative will both really are helping your evolution. Yeah, and in the highest states of consciousness... Um, you, we, we intuitively experience the beauty and perfection of everything. Mm. But along the way to that, we can learn and engineer our experience and response. And that's what this course is designed to do, is to help move us in that direction. Mm. Even if we don't suddenly wake up enlightened one morning and not care about parking tickets or COVID or anything, um, we can still like adjust. We can do our meditation, which helps move us in that direction. And we can adjust our intellectual mistakes and mistaken beliefs. And the combination of doing those two things moves us down this pathway of letting go towards surrender. I think some people might think with surrender and letting go mm. on, well, what am I supposed to just not care about what's going to happen or, or, or kind of associate it with not caring about mm. the results or not being ambitious or not driving forward your, your goals. What do you think? Yeah, what surrender is, surrender isn't about being passive. Surrender is about actively following goals and making decisions, but not against what nature wants. Can you explain what nature is? Yeah, so nature is the creative intelligence that underlies all of our life. And it is orchestrating everything in the universe all the time. This is the Vedic view. And all our suffering comes about when we resist that flow of nature. So our job is not to try to micromanage the world into providing us with our own individual sense of fulfillment. Our job is to align with nature, get in touch with nature. This is what meditation and accessing a higher state of consciousness does. Is to get in touch with nature and follow what nature wants us to do. 
So nature will always support us in what it wants us to do. Mm-hmm. So the, the question of doing things, we still make decisions, we still do things, we still feel drive. The difference is, and we still feel passion. The difference is we don't have attachment to any particular outcome in any particular time frame. But we don't stop acting and we don't stop moving forward. The main difference you might say is we start doing it from a place of love and less from a place of fear. Because you might think, yeah, I'm really driven, but what's driving you? Is it a sense of needing to compare? Is it a sense of status? Is it a sense of needing a certain achievement? Or is it a sense that you deeply feel that this is the thing you should be doing and the best contribution you can make to the world at this time? Mm. Very different things. Some of those are motivated by ultimately by a sense of lack and fear and others are motivated by a sense of love. Mm. So you start to find that your motivation becomes one of love and wanting to do the best thing and live and express the highest value. And I guess failure becomes kind of obsolete when you know that you are going to take action out of love and whatever outcome happens is what's for your greater good. That's right. You just, um, it wasn't relevant for your evolution to get a certain outcome. Really, outcomes become overrated full stop. Because outcomes, when you think about it, are really a very, very small part. The process is the outcome we're interested in. Yeah, as long as we're really um, kind of fixed on outcomes, we'll achieve some outcomes sometimes, uh, maybe a lot of the time. But when we do achieve the outcome, it will give us a very fleeting sense of fulfillment. So outcomes are totally overrated, it turns out, when we actually look at it properly. Hmm. You might think, no, but the outcome is what makes me happy. Mm. Look, if you're doing it like that, then you're going to have fleeting moments of happiness, fulfillment, for what? An hour or weekend when you get the promotion or get the job and so on. But that leaves a hell of a lot of time where there's some inherent dissatisfaction um, and some searching for fulfillment. But when we start flowing with nature, doing what it feels like we're here to do, and that kind of intuitive, passionate, but non-attached way that that gives us, that actual process becomes fulfilling. The process, like, if you want to know what, how to have the most fulfilling life, the formula is this. It is not go out and acquire and achieve as much as you can. That's what society tells you. Mm-hmm. Acquire these things, achieve these things, you know, win an Oscar, win the lottery, both. That's the most fulfilled you'll get. You talk to an Oscar winner, they'll tell you, did it make them happy? Yeah, for about a week on average. And after that, life gets involved, gets back in. They start worrying about the next film. They start looking, oh, shit, that wasn't it. I need to find fulfillment. Where is it again? Right? But the formula is to get in touch with what you're here to do, we're here to do, and do that thing in the best, purest expression of ourselves we can in some level of giving to others and the world. And if you do that, combined with regular Vedic meditation practice. My experience and the experience of everyone I've observed do that is that life becomes, the process becomes one of happiness, mm. regardless of the outcomes. It kind of becomes a bit outcome, shim outcomes. <laughs> a bit. What you're 
made to do or what nature wants you to do is forever evolving Mm -hmm. and forever changing. So actually the outcome that you get just leads to you wanting more outcomes. That's right. Mm. Yeah. The, the outcome, everything, it doesn't matter about the actual, um, literally the outcome and what that activity produced because it produced what it needed to, which is a certain amount of evolution. Mm. And, uh, and there's always, like when you live your life like this, you don't feel like you end up in mischances and cul-de-sacs of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because literally each moment, you have the lower and higher choice. Lower value, higher value. There's a constant forking in the road. Literally moment to moment. So there's never any last chance because just in the next moment, you just take the higher value. So in each moment, you take the higher value and that higher value has its own path to a a great life. It's not like, oh, I missed all the wrong turns. Now I'm I'm never going to find my way back. No, literally next moment, take the higher value and there's immediately what illuminates in front of you is the map to the perfect life, the life you want. Yeah. Well, what happens if you can't take the higher value or you don't you know always what can. If you don't know what the higher value is, then you need to learn Vedic meditation or another Vedic meditation practice and start to form a real connection with the deeper part of yourself. Because the deeper part of yourself will always show you what the higher value is. Just through an intuitive sense. In the course, Learn to Let Go, second plug, um, we actually talk about how, how to tap into your intuition and do this thing called following charm, which is all about finding that higher value. Following charm is following your intuition and the higher value. That's right. Your intuition in the Vedic sense, in the sense of following charm, your intuition will always show you the most creative and evolutionary next step. So when you get in touch with that, you just intuitively know the next move to make. And you stop thinking about things intellectually and start to have an intuitive sense of how to move forward. What do you mean by stop thinking about things intellectually? I mean that your decisions no longer are intellectual decisions. So in each moment we have a proposition to act. Um, I could like put my foot on the floor now, pick up the cup of tea. There's always a proposition to act in each moment. And what we tend to do as humans is we tend to analyze intellectually, you know, crunch the data from the five senses, stir in a a little bit of what worked last time, and then make an intellectual projection about the best navigation to the future. It's all rational. It's all rational. The only problem with that is that the intellect, actually, none of that data has showed us what's going to happen in the future. It's a guess. And the wind might be blowing in a different direction this time to how it was last time. So actually the intellect is not capable of navigating into the future in the way that we think it is. Because it's based on past behaviors and experiences. Yeah. So it's a lot of guesswork. It's just shoddy guesswork it's described as. That's the word in um, Vasishta. It's one of the masters in our tradition. Calls the intellect shoddy guesswork when navigating into the future. However, the Vedic view, and it's not really just the Vedic view, because we all talk about having a gut feeling and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And intuition being a thing. The Veda agrees with this and says that um, on a subtler level, we're constantly being shown uh, the path forward. And the path forward is shown to us based on what's most evolutionary for us. Um, How well we receive that depends on our state of consciousness. 
So if you think of the state of consciousness, low state of consciousness, rusty antenna, rusty old, um, what do you call it, clothes hanger. But higher state of consciousness, nice, shiny, polished, very good at receiving signals antenna. Mm -hmm. So the higher the state of consciousness, the more we clear out the stress which clogs our filter and distracts us from feeling those subtle intuitive impulses, the more we'll be able to get in touch with them and follow those. And life will just, you'll never make it, when you really start doing this, you'll never make a decision again in the way you used to. You know, you sit down and think about stuff. Might sound like anarchy. I never do that. You never sit down and think about stuff. I never sit down and think, oh, what shall I do here? I don't make decisions. Actually, I say never. Once in a blue moon. Every now and then I find myself doing it. Mm -hmm. But in a day, I could easily go the whole day without doing that. You'll never do a pros and cons list. No. I found following Charm during the Learn to Get Let Go class, a course, kind of, I mean, in some areas, very easy. Mm -hmm. And then in some areas, difficult. Mm. Because there's so many factors that goes into deciding on what to do next. Okay. Tell me what you mean. Oh, okay. This is not my example, but this is what comes to mind. So say you have two job offers. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you want to think about the different options for each? and what they're offering you before choosing. You'll have all that in your awareness. You already know all that. Yeah, you, it's not like you ignore information. Yeah. <laughs> you have all of that in your awareness, but the ultimate decision will be intuitive rather than calculated. Yeah. Because hmm. when you know something, you just know it. Yeah, that's the, the idea is that it may be um, that on paper, one of the jobs seems better than the other, but you have the sense that you should take the other one. Hmm. And the Vedic view would be, take the other one. Mm -hmm. Go in that direction. Yeah. The only way to get good at it is to leap before you look, see where you land. And if you don't like it, just leap again. Hmm. So I guess really kind of the pathway here through the Vedic view is raising your state of consciousness through Vedic meditation, removing attachment to outcomes as understanding kind of big picture, everything is for your evolution mm -hmm. and always try to follow your intuition so that it leads you to really your highest path in life. Yeah. But without wishing to be elitist um, or pompous, yeah, you don't want to be following charm unless you're meditating. If you're meditating, committing to a spiritual practice and so on, you are putting your hand up for progressive change. You are getting in touch with the more subtle currents of life and therefore more likely to be able to follow intuition. Mm. And also less likely to have those lower emotions coming in and dominating you with desire. It's a space in between each moment, right, that allows you kind of to open up your mind in intuition, like having creativity within each moment and having your cup filled, your, is it mm. your agility cup filled? Uh, uh, your, yeah, adaptation <laughs> energy. Ah, okay, your yeah. adaptation energy cup filled that gives you a little bit more space. Well, all that does, all that stuff, what it does is what everyone knows about, is it makes you present. Yeah. Because if you have lots of stress in your body, and then you'll constantly be being triggered. You can't walk down the street 
and this is not unusual, this is normal human life, you won't be able to walk down the street without some of your neurological material being tied up in dealing with triggerings that are happening totally out of your awareness, which is why you're constantly being pulled into speculation. You're pulled into speculation to try and, meaning thinking about the future or the past, to try and avoid the feeling of what it feels like to walk down the street. Mm. So you can have almost no present moment awareness. But all what we're talking about here and following charm, all that, all of that information that you need to tap into in order to follow charm is only available in the present moment. Mm. So as long as you're lost in speculation, you're just in the old school way of using the intellect to decide things. Mm. So, yeah, all we're talking about here, really, in all these fancy terms and different ways is is means of becoming present to life as it's actually happening that's great great well i think we'll leave it there yeah is there anything else i think we've given them far too much already that is like (laughs) if anyone made it to the end of this podcast congratulations (laughs) because i mean i don't know but i think some of that was quite involved and advanced vedic stuff so good on you you win a prize. You get to listen to the next podcast that Matt is on. <laughs> very Vedic. Oh, very Vedic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you made it to the end of this. Very Vedic is probably going to be quite digestible after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you, Julie, for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in learning how to meditate with Matt and Bondi, check out Bondi Meditation Center. If you would like to learn to let go or surrender, Matt has an online course available called Learn to Let Go, both of which are available in the show notes. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. Also, please share any episodes on Instagram or with family or friends that may find it helpful. And follow us on Instagram at GoDeep underscore podcast. Thank you. Go deep inside the bank